Welcome to the On The Way podcast, episode one of uh, this new podcast, which is aiming to provide a spiritual framework uh, for anyone who's looking for that, uh, which uh, I guess promotes inclusivity, uh, promotes love, promotes beauty. And uh, we will do that through many conversations with various people. Um, often the, the voices you'll hear on this podcast, though, are mine. My name is Dom Fay. Uh, I am a radio announcer, and I know very little, so I'm surrounding myself with people who know much more, uh, including uh, two people from St. John's Anglican Cathedral in Brisbane, which is known as one of the uh, more uh, accepting and inclusive churches uh, in the country, um, and is quite a, a trailblazer for a lot of these sorts of causes. Um, my guests uh, most week joining me as the co-hosts will be uh, Reverend Sue Wilton, um, who has... Uh, I don't actually know much about Sue's background. I'll get our, our other guest, the very Reverend Dr. Peter Cat, to fill me in on that. Um, Peter, what, what's Sue's background? Uh, Sue is the uh, assistant priest here at the cathedral, and she's only been ordained one year. And before she came to us, uh, and before training in college, she'd been a school chaplain. Right, okay. And um, that is the voice of our other guest, uh, our other co-host, the very reverend Dr. Peter Cat. Quite a long title, so Peter's okay in this podcast? Peter's okay, yes, sure is. <laughs> um, it's my baptismal name. And uh, instantly people listening in might be thinking, how is this going to be an alternative uh, view of, of faith, of spirituality, that isn't just the traditional black and white Christian one that they hear so much of, um, considering that there's two reverends on the podcast, it's... Uh, coming from a cathedral setting, but um, you're quite a different man to, to maybe what people would expect of the reverend stereotype. I mean, you've studied uh, as an evolutionary scientist. Um, you are pro-same-sex marriage and one of the most vocal uh, people on that from the Christian side of things. So already we're breaking a bit of the stereotype, and um, that's probably a good place to start in terms of who you think this podcast will be for? Who, who do you see being the people who really get something out of what we're doing? I would, I would hope this podcast um, would talk to people who are really interested in exploring um, the deeper connections in life, who, who may be a bit jaded with the traditional church, or at least what they think the traditional church looks like. Um, the church is actually a very complex, uh, very diverse uh, creature, and there are plenty of people like me in the church. Uh, so we're not oddities, and I guess it's uh, this is a way of helping those people explore more deeply how spirituality and faith, which is a fairly loaded word, and we'll probably unpack one day in one of these podcasts, how spirituality and faith can uh, give us a full, flourishing life um, I'm aware many people see Christianity as something that inhibits a full life, and uh, my understanding is that Christianity is, in fact, the antithesis of that. It's the thing that should lead people to flourish. So I think it's a podcast for people, really, of of any faith it's welcome to, and, and um, or no faith at all. Um, at any stage along the faith journey, this, this won't be presenting... Um, one version of exactly what what we happen to believe is right and believe that everyone else is wrong. Um, it will be breaking that convention, definitely. I mean, my own journey, uh, briefly, I grew up as a pastor's son, a pastor who went through uh, burnout and, and left his role in, uh, I guess, the organized church. And um, that's kind of led me on this journey in a very minor way as well. So my, my first thing I'd like to say to people listening into this 
is that no matter what your story, no matter what your journey, no matter what you currently believe, we hope that you do feel that this is a podcast for you and that you can uh, get something out of it. Um, it might be a good place to start with you, Peter, to just uh, ask you, when we talk about the Christian faith, in a sentence or two, what is the Christian faith to you? The Christian faith uh, for me is one of the mechanisms, uh, and I think the other faith traditions are some of the other mechanisms. One of the mechanisms that enables people to engage uh, with the fundamentals of life, to work out their essential meaning of their own lives, and to, to connect to connect their life and their life story to the bigger story. There's a big, if you like, a meta-narrative, a huge story, which is the story of the universe, the story of the world, and we would say that God is in that story and that all faith traditions, first and foremost, exist to help people find how their story fits that much, much larger story. Uh, the, the, the Christian church is as you mentioned earlier, very wide. Uh, it covers a, a number of different beliefs on, on so many different issues. Um, it's interesting that, that I, I know you somewhat well, and I would say, in my opinion, that, that most people would not associate a lot of your beliefs with traditional Christianity as they would know it in the world. That it's... Um, that this, this, I guess, this tradition of belief is more radically inclusive and, and loving, that, that a lot of... The Christian Church, I guess, in 2017 has been formed in what it's against, not what it's for. It's been formed in oppressing rather than being on the side of the oppressed. And that's why many people do leave it and, mm. and leave their mm. faith. Um, do, do you think that's come about from a misinterpretation over many years? What, what do you think has led to the fact that the dominant Christian voice seems to be one of, of oppression? That's a, that's a really good question. Um there's always a temptation to form to forms one opinion in response to someone else to be against and it's a it's a seduction that we see happening at the moment as people try to to uh, deal with say Donald Trump mm. um, there's a whole heap of people who are simply uh, protesting against him and the church has fallen often for for that same dynamic if, if, if there's a change put up, the, the first response of those who have something that's very precious to hold on to is just to simply say no and to push back. Whereas I think there's a lot of uh, benefit in crafting your own alternate narrative. And it's certainly the challenge for those who oppose Trump at the moment is that mm. they have to show rather than just responding to him in a negative way, they have to show how there is a positive alternative that really doesn't reference him, just moves on and around him. And that's, that's how I like to see that Christian faith can also uh, uh, be used and, and find its true self. A lot of these are topics, I mean, I guess in some ways that you're touching on non-dualism, which is a very, uh, very prominent topic, I guess, in, in some areas of Christianity, which sure. we will cover at one stage in a podcast, no yeah, doubt. No doubt. Um, this, this episode will probably be a bit uh, vague, touching on different areas. Um, we'll, we'll go more in depth in, in future podcasts. Uh, 
But but I'm going to start with a pretty wide-ranging question because I think this is one that a lot of disenfranchised uh, Christians might have. A lot of people who maybe grew up in a church or have been involved in a church and at some stage have come to reject the faith. Um, that there's a belief out there, I guess, that the dominant Christian faith today does not represent what the man it is based on stood for. That Jesus Christ, the man who lived... 2,000 years ago, stood for things which now the the Christian church is quite differing on. Um, do, do you agree with that sentiment? And, and if so, why do you think that's happened? Um, I, well, I think that's always the case. Um, Jesus, Jesus was always ahead of the game and remains ahead of the game. And uh, Jesus' teaching really uh, critiqued the societal structure of his day it critiqued the religious practices of his day. And that, I think, is the job of the Christian story, is to continually critique society and religion. And so we will always, we will always be behind the eight ball, which is why the, um, you know, I think this is the name of this podcast, calling it The Way, mm. is really important because we are on the way. We haven't arrived anywhere and Jesus goes before us. Mm. The story, the stories of Jesus are always challenging the church, will and will always challenge the church, because his story is one of radical inclusion, and the breaking down of barriers, which speaks to the very core of how humans operate. Mm. We operate through the construction of barriers, walls, and perhaps. the construction of walls, and and we are always practicing some form of exclusion. And so he is, you know, even in a place like, you know, even we who try to be inclusive, who, who see inclusion as being so important, are nowhere near right, are perfect. His story, the story of Jesus and his radical forgiveness and his non-violence um, constantly challenge us and I think I think um, that is the call so that we will always be open to be criticized when we're put against the story of Jesus and it's owning that that criticism is valid and that our job is to simply try to follow on the way and I think that following is is the term it's it's a humbling of yourself almost. absolutely it's absolutely. Um, it's why some, you know, uh, I guess religious leaders who you will see are almost empowered by the, the fame that their, maybe their church or their congregation gives them. And, and you know, there's, there's a lot of these sorts of people out there. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of great work that comes from those traditions. But it does feel the opposite of, you know, the, the, the man who lived a humble life. Um, uh, something I want to, I guess, before we go any further, touch on is the fact that that I know this version of Christianity that you live, that you are one of the most, uh, I'd say, vocal advocates for in Australia, is um, it's one that even a lot of uh, people who would identify as atheists would say that I like that. Yes, in indeed. principle, I really yeah. like that. It's why. Yeah. You get uh, some ma- uh, mainstream media coverage about some of your your standpoints because it's quite a it's quite a, an attractive notion mm. of love. Yes, but a lot of people who like that will still say, "But I don't believe in a god." Sure, 
I, I like what he's saying. Yes. Um, and I agree with it, but I don't believe in a God. I don't believe in a higher power. I, I, I find that bit hard to, to struggle. And maybe we'll spend a whole podcast once sure, talking about what, do we, that one time. Yeah. what we mean yeah. when we say the word God. That's probably a different question. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I, I think it's a good place to, to really kick off by talking about why you do believe in uh, in the divine is the, the word divine. I'll use for now. Yeah, um, it's the word I would use too, the divine. Um, because it, it, you, you grew up an atheist, didn't you? I did grow up an atheist. Um, my parents were both formed in uh, religious Christian religious traditions, but I was brought up as an atheist basically because my parents rejected um, their understanding of Christianity. So I only had really uh, oblique uh, contact with the church, SRE in school and stuff like that when I was a kid. And uh, and for me it was uh, having transformative experiences, which these days I would call spiritual experiences, but I didn't have that language i just thought that's what happened i thought it was normal and no one talked about it it was just feeling of being uh, warm and loved and of what i would now call the divine presence and being um overawed by beauty and the magic the absolute magic of biology uh, and evolution just absolutely captivated me and and i found myself awestruck and eventually I've, I uh, experienced an act of worship quite by accident where I saw a group of people who were awestruck as mm. they were at worship. And it was that connecting of that sense of awe that made me think, oh, here's something to explore. So it was, it was and, you know, there were no, there were no words that worked. Um, people had tried many times to convert me just because of places I ended up you know at university and the like uh, but it was these people who were speaking in a language I didn't understand I, I presume it was Latin um, <laughs> uh, who, who were just absolutely captivated by this beauty their worship was beautiful and, and I think I think that's a good common ground maybe for anyone listening in if you've lived a human life you would know those experiences of awe. Yes, yeah. People would have attributed them to many, I guess, different things, but perhaps it's you're know, looking at a sunset. That's um, right. And, yeah. and the 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 stunning beauty, the uh, inexplicable beauty from that, or or maybe it was holding your child for the first time. Things like Absolutely. this, the, mm. the 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 universal experiences just attributed to different things. Um. So so when I guess did you know that that or when did you first fully believe that there is there is something greater than the human being there is there is i guess a the the divine is present well and it's the fact that the divine i felt the divine as present um so at one level i had that sense of assurity when i was three Mm. which is my first memory of spiritual experience but it really wasn't until i was in my mid-20s and i had that experience of those people at worship that I began to that all the ducks started to line up and then I started to be then I became an inquirer and I and I basically had that as my filter so um, I inquired in many Christian communities but I was always looking for someone who would help me understand or at least 
validate or explore the spiritual experiences. Mm. And that was a fairly convoluted path because some Christian communities didn't know what to do with that inquiry, um, weren't hostile about it, but really just admitted that they didn't know how to in, uh, get involved in that conversation. Others were incredibly hostile to it because their understanding was it was all about knowledge and you know it was the head stuff rather than the heart. And eventually I found um, a worshipping community that where it all sort of fell together and it just happened to be in the Anglican tradition and all that uh, all that you know for me it was the coming together of many many years of of journeying which I now see as being on the way all of that time and still on the way and still on the way absolutely always which, on the way which is the exciting bit really that's yeah. what keeps it fresh and exciting and and uh, makes worship uh, hum for me just that sense of anticipation of how will how will today's act of worship connect me to being awestruck the mm. presence and the, and how will the presence touch my life today and i think there is this constant sense that that we are all on the way whether you go to a church a, a mm. mosque a nightclub a, a pub whatever it is wh- whatever your rituals are your yes. i guess your lifestyle involves you are on the way and um and i think you and i would probably both reject the notion that that there is this one exact way of getting it right in terms yep. of these this this experience of beauty and love, yep. and that everything else is wrong. I mean, sure. you're, you do a fair bit of, or you've been to a number of um, interfaith events sure. and done yeah. some work with interfaith yeah. work. Yep. Um, the majority of, uh, I guess, what's publicly seen as the Christian faith would say other faiths are wrong. They are invalid. They um in some cases, some people call them evil. Yeah, indeed, but th- there is a there is an increasing uh, there is a large and increasing um, field of interfaith dialogue where people respectfully uh, engage with the other, and we have some really prime examples of people who were uh, in their own life even able to straddle traditions. You know, there's um, Bede Griffiths, who was a Benedictine monk. He was also a Hindu holy man, so he lived in an ashram in India and in his holy man robes would celebrate the Eucharist and he his writings give us great insights into how the faith, different faiths uh, can uh, speak together and to each other. And Thomas Merton, um, he when he died, was exploring that same link with Buddhism and how the mystical tradition in both the Christian and the Buddhist tradition uh, link us at a very profound level. So there's been, there's been a long-standing sort of dialogue and interest and increasingly that is seen as the way forward uh, rather than setting ourselves up to hate. Um, I think one of the most important things about the whole being on the way is that people are, uh, once they realise that there is are these precious moments, that they somehow engage in some intentional uh, act of connecting to it so instead of being apprehended by a beautiful sunset and then saying oh that was lovely and then moving on without that in any way changing what you do next Mm. 
that that the spiritual traditions, and I think it's the gift of being part of a tradition, is that the, is, at their best they say to you, um, you've just you've just had that experience. How's it going to shape your life? So, so that you don't to delve deeper. Yeah, and so you actually delve deeper, and you you ask, how? So okay, I've had that experience. Um, does does having that experience is it, is it simply a validation of where I am, which it may be, or is it or is it saying to me uh, something needs to change so that I can flourish? Because there is a there's a tendency in our really busy world just to get on a bit of a treadmill and for each day to become like the day before, and and that's you know, what leads to the midlife crisis. It leads to the lid, midlife crisis and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Whereas. You know, the spiritual traditions awake us to the idea of being present, uh, being present in the moment, recognizing God's present in the moment, that each moment is special, that today isn't the same as yesterday, today is a different day, today that is full of possibilities, um, and, and basically asking us to step off the treadmill for even a few minutes a day, and that's where practices like meditation and mindfulness and prayer um, are all really helpful in that they get people to make the most of their life. Mm. So you don't get to the end of it and say, oh, you know, I wish I had or I should have, or you know, hopefully to avoid that sense that I had one crack at this. It was a precious gift. There's only going to be one me. Um, I'm not like everybody else. Um, everyone else is as special as I am and I am special and I'm unique and uniquely loved and uniquely gifted. So what am I going to do with that? Mm. Um, well, it is so easy, especially now now more than ever, you can almost go through an entire human life distracted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, by, by achieving career goals or, you know, basically ticking boxes. Yep. Um, and you can, it, it can feel like such an overwhelming um place of meaning yeah you, you think you'll find meaning in status identity relationships with others now all these places can give you a sense of meaning yeah, absolutely and they're all important it's they're, just yeah it's how you integrate them into something that's a much larger picture and i think that's what you spoke about yeah. earlier on in the podcast about the, a faith life is not regardless of what the faith life is it's not something to at its best to constrict you or to to lead you to live a less fun or more controlled or, or whatever it is, negative life. It's to give you an enriched life. Yes, help you flourish. Help you flourish, definitely. Yeah. I think um, talking about this, I guess, that idea of interfaith, one of my earliest memories as a pastor's kid, I remember driving to church one morning, I would have been probably nine or ten years old, and we drove past uh, the, the local mosque on the way to church. Uh -huh. And I didn't say anything to my parents, but I remember just seeing the, the Muslims going uh, coming out of the mosque, I think they were. Um, and I remember thinking they think they're right just as much as we think we're right. And then I started thinking the Buddhists think they're right. Yeah, yeah. The atheists think yeah. they're right. Yes. And, and, and someone's got to be wrong. Yeah. How do I know we're not the wrong ones? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I think that's the, I guess the thinking that a lot of people in, in, and it's not a faith thing. I mean, you can see it with state of origin. Uh, one's right, one's wrong. That's right. Um, that that concept of buying into right and wrong, I think it's it's very unhelpful in a faith life. Would you agree with that? Um, well, the, the, uh, it's the both end really, because there are things that one 
Um, you know, in Christian tradition, the test is, is it loving? That's mm. the ultimate test. So, so something that is not loving, um, one could be tempted to say is not right. Yes, um, yeah. So we're not, we're not I, mean, I, think, I don't think it's a matter of dispensing from the seeking after truth. It's about how one does it. And I think it's the attitude that needs shaping. And so there's essential, I think, I think you were on the money when you, know, you vocalised, you know, maybe we are not right. Mm. So it means you can sit a little more lightly on your tradition. Um, one of my uh, little catch cries that goes through my head in times of, uh, of stress when we're dealing with that whole sort of right and wrong issue is, is truth is robust. And so I don't need, I don't need to attach my sense of self to the defending of that which I feel is right, which I think is, I think that's where the error happens when people defend a principle because if that somehow is shown not to be so, then they are personally defeated. Mm. So it's being open to the possibility that there is something else to be discovered so that you actually are on the way. And so one is, one is seeking a deeper truth at all times and... One is seeking to uh, dispel falsehood, so there is a, you know, and so we want to, we want to expose um, fake news, <laughs> for, uh, to use a <laughs> modern term, um, because it isn't. I mean, there is a danger in just thinking that anything goes, whereas this really is about us seeking. If, if people are going to flourish, then we have to actually get get it right in one sense uh, but i guess it's a again it's the call to humility uh, humility is at the core of it mm. and and knowing that truth if you if, if one is really confident that truth is robust one can enter into all sorts of dialogues preferably dialogues rather than, than discussions because discussion is meant is is, a, is sort of a a winner's you know, seeking after winners whereas dialogue is a way of engagement um that which is good for people and and enables flourishing will bubble up out of that dialogue so you, you mentioned that the christian faith at its core is loving yeah um and and that's so uh, evidently demonstrated through the life of of jesus um but the the experience of christianity for many people in the world is not a loving one sure um for uh, people of many minorities, people mm. of uh, different faiths, um, even many Christians themselves don't find their tradition to be one that, that loves them sure. or other Christians to be loving. Yes. Um, do you think there's a, sometimes an arrogance that comes out of a belief that we are the only ones with the answer and that leads to a, a lack of uh, love? It could be an arrogance. Um, I, I think the problem is that... Um, is that we have a tension in the Christian or Judeo-Christian tradition um, where law, law has paid such, law and rules have played such a strong role. And so there's always been a tradition and we see Jesus doing battle with that tradition in the Jesus stories. In the, in the biblical tradition, um, there, is a, there is a lot of law and Jesus was... Um, and there are people in the faith who who rely on law, and the Bible has been turned into a rule book, 
rather than, if you like, a narrative of people trying to work out how to relate to God and find their way on the way. And so Jesus was always in tension with that tradition and the, and the church is in tension with itself over that tradition because there is there are still those who think that um, the rules get us close to God. And um, my understanding is Jesus cut through all of that with those great commandments about loving God and loving your neighbour as yourself, which holds, I think, one of the key uh, um, one of the keys to unlocking the spiritual life, because in, implicit in the second commandment is the third, which is that you must love yourself. Mm-hmm. So one of my things is uh, the problem with the second commandment: you must love your neighbour as yourself. Is that too many of us do? because we actually don't love ourselves. Mm. We treat our neighbours with similar uh, disregard or disrespect or hate because there's a lot of self-hatred in humanity and, and sometimes we ex- see that expressed in Christianity. So the Jesus movement is really challenging us all the time to explore the loving way. Um, so there are ethical systems devised by Christians that are simply... What is the loving response in this situation? And I think, um, for me, one of the, the tests for whether something is loving or not is the, what I call the kindness test. Because it's very easy to say for people to talk about tough love, which sort of corrupts, I think, the concept of love. Uh, and at its heart, whatever is a loving response must be kind. Mm. So is it kind is also a key question. So I think that the tradition has been battling between law and love for a long time and sometimes we confuse, sometimes partly because of our own experience of it, we confuse what love looks like. Um, so I think there are some, some of the images uh, of God are a bit dissonant. They talk about the love of God but at the same time that loving God has a baseball bat hidden behind <laughs> his or her back so that if you don't respond in the way that he or she wants us to, you'll get smacked about the head. And mm. so uh, for me, that's not love, um, but many people experience that as love in their relationships. So it's no wonder that we get it all a bit confused. So it, it, almost our relationship with God mirrors our relationship with the people around us. Oh, it can be shaped that way, yeah, yeah or, wow. or vice versa. I mean, it depends how it happens. I think some people get up, brought up in a in a sort of corrupted love environment, either because of their family or because of religion, and then that gets extended later. Um, so at the heart, we have to come really back to that question of what does love really look like? And, and love does not coerce, love invites. And so if you believe in a loving God, then you can't believe in the God that's going to smack you about the head with the baseball bat. You've got to believe in the God who is disappointed. Like, if, if love is not, you know, if unrequited love is something that God might experience too, of mm. loving someone to bits and then being really upset that that person doesn't respond to love and finds their life become less... Uh, fantastic than it could be if they understood they were loved. It's um, it's an analogy that my dad has used. I'm not sure if it's one of his own or one that he found somewhere else, but he mentioned that uh, a lot of people in the Christian tradition believe uh, that their concept of God is that when they do things wrong, they're in a house and God is lighting that house on fire. He's lighting a match. Whereas the truth of it is we're in the house. We're the ones always lighting the matches. Absolutely. And 
God is the one who's running into the burning building to try to get us out. Absolutely. There's no anger. There's no hatred. There's yes. no judgment. There's there's just always love. Love. Yeah, um, and that's some, right. Sometimes this 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 sense of of a deep sorrowful love of this yes. is not what was intended yes. for yes. you. Yes. So yeah. So my image of judgment, for instance, is is um, by imagining what it's like to come face to face with someone who has loved you to bits always and who stands there and says to you i love you when you you know say this is sort of my imagined Mm. um, imagined at the end of my life i will go and stand in front of the divine who will just say i love you and i always have now would you like to tell me your life story Mm. and it's not that i'm god is not going to beat me up i'm going to if you like have to come to terms with my own the way I've let myself down. Really, it's not. It's not that, and I'm not going to. Uh, and that's just. And, and that you can see that as being searing and cleansing and um, purgatory, if you like. But it's not because God is saying you have to be punished for this. It's basically that you're just measuring yourself against pure love, and when you know. And so that's that's sort of how I now try to do my um, life analysis on a daily or weekly basis is basically saying, well, if I was going to give an account of this, you know, after all of the self-justification and the, you know, going through my head saying, yeah, that was a legitimate thing to do, blah, 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 blah. Um, I just sort of steady myself and say, yes, but if you were to stand in front of the divine who basically says, Peter, I love you to bits, how have you loved me and how have you loved others? I might have to give it a slightly different account to the one that's <laughs> self-justified and legitimized. And, and I find that really works because, you know, there are you know, a few, few things in the last couple of years where I've really, when I've been analyzing my actions in the light of that, I've been able to say, well, I really stuffed up there. I really stuffed well, up again, there. Well, again, it's the call to humility and it, yeah. it makes it impossible to have an ego when you take that approach. I think... Um, I think it's the concept of you're not being judged by the divine. No. You're, you're, you're being judged by yourself. That's right. It's, um, it's almost right. like you're not judged for your sins, but no. you're judged by them. Yes, yeah, right. And do you like what you see? Yeah. yeah. The, the sins themselves are what judge you. Not yeah, absolutely. That's right. Like the, the, the only presence, the only force coming from the divine is love. Yes, right. At all stages. At all stages. It's not love, but okay, now we need to have a chat. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, or, or now I'm going to beat you up because you got no. it wrong. It, it's basically that love is such an incredible power that it... Um, it invites us to call ourselves to account. Well, I suppose you see this theme sometimes in, in storytelling um, where maybe a, a disobedient child will uh, cause their parents hell for, for a prolonged period of time and then you'll see the child in their adult years break down when they realise how their mother just always loved always them. Always loved them, that's and right. And how much <coughs> they let that down. Yeah, and, and yeah. And how the response never changed from love. That's right. But they still feel awful. Yeah. I guess it's that sense of, um, how could I have done that when this was there? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think that's, and that's really wholesome because it means that one is forever um, seeking to be one's best self and and to be one's best loving self. It's just an amazing set of... It it gives one um, an amazing aspiration. Mm. And... 
you can see how when people grab hold of that, they begin to really flourish. I think it's a, a concept of there's no guilt trip. There's mm. no um, go sit in the naughty corner and think yeah. about what you've done. It's just, um, it's almost like the the pure love and, and facing your life in the face of pure love. I think you used the word cleanse. It almost yeah. is a cleansing. What is a cleansing? It's because a returning. It's, yeah, you know, and 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 it becomes like the fire of love. Then I mean, it's yeah. you know that that to to stand in front of the divine in that way is a searing experience, and it's not because God's burning you. Mm. It's because you really can see how you could have done better. Do you think that's what was meant by the term God fearing? At um, its core. Well, it's certainly how it should be interpreted today. Mm. I think, and 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 when we grab hold of concepts like that, then we we realise that it's it's those sort of images of God and Jesus that have to challenge some of the imagery that we have allowed to shape our image of Jesus. So, for example, in the creed, we say that we believe that Jesus will come to be our judge. And um, my sense is that most people uh, interpret that through their understanding of what a judgment looks like, of, of a judge, and they have images of harshness and um, calling to account and not being friendly and not being loving. And so they say, oh, Jesus is going to be like a judge. Whereas I think what we need to do is flip all of that around and have the idea that uh, our judge will be Jesus. And Jesus, we know, is loving, kind, forgiving, freeing, liberating. And so when you say, he will become our judge. You say, oh, he will become our judge. So the idea of judge gets turned on its head, mm. just as the idea of judgment gets turned on its head, because it's Jesus, as we encounter him in the Jesus stories, who does that action, not him being formed in the image of the worst thing you can think of in terms of a judgment. Mm. Yeah, I, I have this uh, conversation regularly with a, a bit of a mentor of mine about if there was one Bible verse you'd get tattooed on you. If you were going to get a, a verse tattooed, as, as many people tend to do. Yeah, I'm they not do. a tattoo yeah, kind yeah, of guy, yeah, personally. No, no, no. I've, <laughs> um, yeah. But if there was going to be one, I think it would be the, the small excerpt when Jesus is being crucified. He's facing the absolute worst of humanity. He is facing pain and betrayal yeah. and abandonment beyond belief. Yeah. And the words he uses are, Father, forgive them. They uh -huh. don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. It's, yep. it, it, there's, it, I think that's almost the invitation of the other way. That's the invitation of, of in the face of anything, yep. you can choose love. You can choose yes. forgiveness. You can choose to, to release the human need to be right, the human vengeance. You can, yes. you can release these emotions that we see, I think, so at play in politics in Absolutely. the world. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and, I guess if you're asking why the Christian faith can lead you to a better life, that's probably the uh, yeah. <laughs> clear way of putting yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so you you found experiences of beauty, you interpreted them through uh, the divine, um, and you found a, a relationship with the divine through that. Yeah. Um, I I know the first time you and I met, I was interviewing you at, at uh, a church in suburban Brisbane um, at a, as part of a church service, and uh, you told me about how 
becoming a, I guess, a part of the clergy was actually your father's worst nightmare, more or less. It was, um, for sure. Um, simply because he saw the church as an agent of oppression mm. um, and of privilege and of um, cementing privilege. You know, he, he really had that sense of... You know, Mrs. Alexander's version of all things bright and beautiful, where one of the one of the verses says, uh, "The rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate. God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate." Um, my God's, uh, my dad saw the church as as enshrining injustice because because of that sense of oh, this is the way God made it, and that sort of tendency in the church to defend social order as we find it as being somehow divinely given and he had um, become an agent of social change and had found the way to do that in his particular context was through the union movement and so he saw the church as as bolstering um, inequality or enshrining enshrining the injustices of of society by putting a god gloss on it and um so when i was said i was going to be ordained not only did he see that i was wasting all my training as an evolutionary <laughs> microbiologist but he also his his key question to me was so what's going to happen to your social conscience because i had really inherited that mm. deep sense from him and it's a great gift i still hold precious and eventually I was able to show him that deep within the Christian tradition is is this move to social justice. And I would even advocate that in the Western tradition, our pursuit of social justice is actually because of the traction that the Jesus story has had in our culture. And um, so he soon got over it when he realized that I was advocating for justice. And, you know, I still do. And I'm chair social responsibilities committee and the australian church's refugee task force as expressions what i think are core expressions of the faith so he's much more settled now because i didn't lose that which he held most precious if anything you probably fostered it you grew that that passion well i found i found a deep ontological basis for it so mm. it wasn't it was it ceased to have this have have the feeling of being an opinion based on my social circumstance to, for me, something that is actually deeply connected to God's God's purpose for humanity. That that everyone is meant to flourish, and everyone because everyone's unique and uniquely loved. Every person has that um, right to flourish, and so one of the things the church is called to do is to challenge society when that's not happening. Uh, I suppose if you see the divine as above all else loving, if you see love as the, if even if you dismiss everything else and see love as the only characteristic, yes, the, and and kindness is so closely attached to love, then realistically, the the, the Christian movement should be the strongest social justice force in the world. And Absolutely, I think yeah. At its core, it, it was and is. Yeah. And it's um, given birth to so many. Um, you know, it, it was the Christian tradition that gave birth to Amnesty International mm. and to Greenpeace. And, and you know, if, if it wasn't for the 
the the social justice agencies of the church and the social caring agencies of the church, this society would be very different to what it is today. So there is that deep, deep understanding that that's what the church is called to do. And uh, I think this is... Um this leads to something that uh, I guess you made a little bit of uh, a splash in the media at times about, which is you being on the side of being in favour of same-sex marriage um, in Australia, uh, pushing that cause, which uh, there's not a lot of vocal, I guess, um, Christian figures who push that cause. More so, it seems to be Christian figures pushing the opposite cause. Sure. And, um, And they are quite steadfast and certain in their belief that Biblical text backs up their their standpoint that it is maybe unnatural or, or whatever their, their yeah, argument may whatever, be. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess a good place to start is is how, from a Christian perspective, can you be pro same sex marriage? Um, well, I guess my view is how, from a Christian perspective, can you not be? <laughs> but uh, um, I've been an advocate for um, well over thirty years for the recognition of gay and lesbian relationships. Um, it turned into advocacy for for same-sex marriage or marriage equality, which is, the I think, the better term, um, when my gay and lesbian friends started to understand that marriage had actually shifted because of heterosexual practice to be something that they uh, could see themselves being part of. 30 years ago, if I'd advocated or to my gay and lesbian friends that um, that they should get married or that mar- I should be advocating for marriage on their behalf, they would have thought I was a fascist because mm-hmm. they understood marriage to be quite an oppressive uh, institution, which, you know, in its history, it's you know, marriage has been an evolving thing. Um, heterosexuals have changed the nature of marriage over the years and our prayer book... Uh, reflects that change. Every version of the prayer book has a slightly different focus on what marriage uh, is. There are some consistencies about it in terms of loving and nurturing each other and that sort of stuff. But but the uh, hierarchical view of marriage disappeared in our 95 prayer book. and So there's that sort of change. And uh, I guess from my point of view, it comes back to that whole um, the love test. Mm. Um, and And... Now whilst whilst it's difficult for many in the hierarchy to advocate for marriage equality because of the way it takes a long takes churches a long time sometimes to to deal with those sort of issues. Um, first and foremost, I've, I'm advocating for um, marriage equality in the secular sense. Um, firstly, because 70% of marriages are actually done by non-religious celebrants, so it's actually not, uh, uh, it's not really a religious issue. And, and because through the loving test, I just basically say, you know, are these people good for each other? Are they, is their relationship something that causes um, everyone to be happy and flourishing, flourishing being that term again. And I'm, for, I know that for many people that's been the thing that's converted them is their experience of, of their children, parents, work colleagues who are in same-sex, mari- or same-sex relationships who they can see are good for each other and 
Well, it removes it from the abstract. Yeah, it's it not abstract. It, it, it yeah. makes it quite real, and yeah, and so. it is. Um, what I find interesting on the, I guess, the same-sex marriage debate is that it, for the most part, the journey seems to be one way. People move from being against it to yeah. then when it becomes real, and they see again the beauty of it. Yeah, it is about beauty. Yeah, yeah. once once they see somebody who maybe never really was able to feel love or connect to love, once they see that person experience that sort of a relationship, they think, how could this be real? Yeah, how can it be real? And it's, it was what convinced a lot of people in the church about the ordination of women. There were people who who still had a philosophical, theological objection to it, who were converted by experience. They, they, saw, they saw the giftedness of the ordained women and they saw God at work in their lives and so had to come to the point of saying, um, I, it has to be real because I see it. And I, I think that's where the churches are, are at at the moment. And I have every confidence that in the fullness of time, the churches will adapt their, their approach because you know, there are already surveys out there that show the majority of people in the majority of the majority of Christians in the majority of churches are actually pro-marriage uh, equality, which is funny because that's not that's not the voice you hear in the media. No, and and um, and I mean, you know, to be fair to the leadership, the leadership has to reflect the the official view of the church. So that's that's how they see their role. Um, and there's the, there may be a podcast about how leadership works one day, but <laughs> but you know, I understand why they feel the need to voice that which is the official policy um, and often often change comes about by the the grassroots changes eventually the, the there's a mechanism that allows the hierarchy to reflect that which the grassroots is saying and that's when the shift happens so you know, the Catholic Church has been through this with contraception the official view is that um, contraception is not on. Um, Catholic families now have the same number of kids as everyone else, so something's happened at the grassroots <laughs> level, and in the fullness of time, there will be a process by which the Catholic hierarchy um, goes with that. Without, and you see it happening with the Pope. I mean, the Pope, the Pope, uh, in, uh, in terms of same-sex. Um, relationships and gay people the the pope is using very different language these days saying that the church needs to apologize to gay people for the way they've been treated uh, he hasn't actually changed the catholic doctrine as yet but by him finding a way to express that we need that that that, that church needs to issue an apology he's he's recrafting the catholic approach to it um preserving the idea of um, everything stays the same forever. They've done the same over evolution over time. You know, there's a complex complex issue for for churches. And, and unfortunately, the whole um, idea of marriage has become a bit of a political touchstone in churches, which gives the uh, issue more angst associated with it than maybe it deserves. It's interesting, though, because I know a lot of uh, my Christian friends who probably are more in the traditional 
Um, I don't like using the word traditional because actually yeah. what, I, what I'm referring to as the traditional Christian view is not actually the traditional yeah, Christian view. Yeah, that's view. right. That's the, it's yeah. the, the, maybe the, the current Christian view is a better way to put it. Um, they, their belief is, and they're, they're loving people. These are yes, decent people. Okay. These are not um, hateful people. No. But their belief is that the, the, the scripture is quite clear yes. on this matter. Um, and that had, you know, the divine uh, intended for same-sex relationships, then the, I guess the reproduction would not be, or the, the, bio, the human biology would be different. Sure. Um, what's your response to people, I guess, who, who have these, the, either the, the biological argument or, or have the argument that the scriptures are quite clear-cut on this? What do you say in response to them? Well, I, I think there's a podcast in how you how one uses scripture. Oh, definitely. Um, um, there's this because because that's that that is the heart of the issue. Um, I, I think the scriptures are really important, uh, like foundationally important. Um, but to use them as simple rule books like that, I mean, you know, contextually the scriptures are not as clear as many people claim them to be mm. on many issues, and and we. Through looking at at broad sweep evolution within the scriptures, we have been able to uh, stay true to scripture while at the same time advancing change. I think partly the scriptures are very important and too important to be uh, used in a simplistic way. They are they are our, one of our bedrocks, and um, you know, part of the defence of scripture, I think, is to defend it from being used so simplistically. Well, perhaps the response then, because I know a lot of these people would say that, that people who maybe are pro-same-sex marriage or, or have different views are taking the scripture lightly, yeah. but in fact it's quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. I mean, I think the scriptures, uh, and it's, it goes back to what I said at the beginning about you know, the Jesus stories continually challenging everybody, mm. um, that the, the scriptures are actually really important and they're important in terms of of understanding process understanding our how our understanding of god has shifted and how our understanding of all sorts of things have shifted i mean you know the the, the biblical view of marriage is is all over the shop uh, abraham married his sister um David had dozens of wives and concubines and was still seen as godly. Um, you know, the, very, the very sort of living arrangement that these days would be seen as unchristian, mm. uh, unbiblical even. And yet, you know, so the Bible is, is not just, uh, if, if God had wanted us to have a simple rule book, he would have maybe given us Ten Commandments or something. <laughs> you know, he would have put it down in a simple form. And, and I think it's really to denigrate the scriptures is to just see them as a well let's flip through the scriptures and find something that sustains our particular approach to an issue i think we have scripture is something we wrestle with Mm. and it's in wrestling that we get insights into what the divine would have us do today and experience is part of that wrestling so we have to bring our experience for instance in this day and age um uh, as you said before, the whole idea of um, same-sex relationships has gone beyond the abstract because there are so many same-sex relationships out there these days. We're not talking about whether this will be good for us or not. We can see that it has been good mm. for us. 
It's not a compromise. It's not a, it's not a compromise. Any, and and it no longer is a theoretical conversation. We're mm. actually now being confronted by reality and the reality says, okay, how do you read this? You know, and there are some, some stats that in terms of same-sex families and their child raising, for instance, that show that, that they tend to have better outcomes. Now, I'm not surprised by that because of the absolute intentionality that mm, goes... You have to fight quite hard. And, and, you know, to have a child as a same-sex uh, couple um, doesn't happen by accident. Mm. You know, there are no same-sex um, <laughs> families that are, oh, goodness, we're pregnant, what are we going to do now? It's they, they really make conscious decisions to, to do parenting, which means that... So it's not surprising that on average their children have better outcomes. Mm. So you know, some of the arguments that have been used about, you know, think of the children, um, if you're going to go down that sort of simplistic argument, you're going to be arguing against heterosexual <laughs> relationships or, yes. or, or requiring everyone to be as intentional about having children as, as same-sex couples are. Mm. So some of, some of the arguments come back... Um, to bite us if we if that's how we're going to construct it. So, you know, the church now is faced with the issue of how do we how do we deal with this reality? And if you you can apply your understanding of a legal framework if you like and condemn that which others see as wholesome and flourishing or you can apply the um the loving frame. Mm. And, and I think um one of the things that stood out to me when I first came to the cathedral here um, was the prominent use of the word mystery. Um, the the Christian mystery, I think, is the, yep. the, the phrase that's used a lot. And I was reading recently in um, Tim Costello, the, the leader of World Vision, in his book, he mentioned that he struggles with both religious and secular fundamentalists because they mm. both come to the table with their mind made up. Absolutely. His, his Absolutely. And I think um, the mystery is underpinned by love, and that's all we know for sure. Yep, absolutely. That's right. There's only one sort of, one essential, and that is love. Mm. And the rest, there's a whole lot of stuff that's absolutely provisional, and there's a whole lot of stuff that I hold as being precious that one day will be nothing but dross. (laughs) Um, And because, because, you know, humans humans are open to exploring and to discovery, and we've discovered so much about the nature of the world in the last you know, three or four hundred years that really has turned on its head our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of where the world fits in the universe. Um, and, and, and the faith tradition at its best has, has embraced those things and gone, wow, this is really cool. And and has learnt that God is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and that faith, you know, that the faith is getting more and more exciting. I mean, for me, I can't. I'm just so grateful that I live in in the 2010s rather than mm. um, being in the 1950s, mm. because I just see us being part of this really opened up universe that invites our spirituality to go wow pow and really expand into into the same sort of space so yeah for me and and the mystery is at the heart of that that we're constantly seeking 
after new insights into God, new insights into the world, how the insights into the world help us to understand God and how our sense of the divine helps us understand our purpose in a universe that otherwise would cause us to feel like we were insignificant. It's, you know, it's, it's funny because a lot of people would dismiss the divine, but would completely believe in, uh, I guess, the merits of love. Yeah. Completely believe that the, the, the best human life is one that is underpinned by love. Absolutely. Um, yeah. for, for all. Yep. And, um, I mean, my experience has been that, uh, my, my belief has been, I guess, that, that perhaps that is an experience with the divine that you just have not labeled as one. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was, that was certainly my, like, that mm. really echoes my early life where, where my religious experiences in inverted commas were really experiences of just feeling absolutely loved to death. Yeah. And I didn't call them didn't call that experience God and I didn't call it the divine and I didn't call it anything because, but it was, it was realer than real. And it was the faith tradition that gave me the language to articulate it. So I've only ever talked about it really since I came into the church, which actually has a tradition where, you know, the mystical tradition in the church basically says you can experience God in the here and now. And mm. if you do experience these things, they are experiences of God. I mean, it's, so it's, um, and that's one of the things I'm most grateful for is the Christian tradition gave me the vocabulary mm. to describe those things. Yeah. And through giving, through the power of language, uh, opened those things up. Because I mean, until I had those words, um, and I couldn't share them with people, um, they were less than what they've become. I was um, talking with a friend recently who uh, identifies quite uh, passionately as an atheist um, and uh, recently has, uh, through some pains and struggles in his own life, started to, I guess, ask some some questions. He's searching for meaning. Yeah. Um, He's on the way. On I the guess way, you, you indeed. Yes, yes. And um, and I was trying to explain, I guess, my beliefs to him, and and what's the core of what I believe, the I guess, a good life to be. Yeah. And um, and the the first thing I wanted to make clear is that I didn't think that I had, I was in a club that he could come into now. Yeah. Or that I was, you know, had had this knowledge or set of experiences that that he didn't, but that actually just by being alive on this planet, he has experienced, seen, heard, lived the, th the same things that I attribute the meaning to. Absolutely. It's all yeah. about the attribution, uh, the attribution of this meaning. Yes. And I think, um, I think when you attribute it to a completely loving divinity, things start to make a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think, and I think that's the power of being given the gift of language and the gift of community gift of a community that takes this stuff really seriously. Um, mm. you know, a few years ago, I was really struck by... There was a survey they did in the UK where they asked people if they had ever had a spiritual experience, and most people would said no. So then the researchers would sit down and explain to people the sort of things that they were labelling as spiritual experiences, and there was that sense of you know, a beautiful sunset that made you sort of took your breath away, made mm. you feel like you were in the in the midst of infinity, you know, the, all those... Something in your soul. Something in your soul and all that mm. sort of stuff. Um, and as they unpacked 
the, you know, the, work, the understanding of spiritual experience, uh, they discovered that 98% of people, 98% of people could say that they'd had that yeah, sort wow. of experience. Um, and then they uh, explored with those people whether those, those uh, experiences were important to them and uh, they acknowledged that the very conversation they were having meant that those experiences were taking on a profundity that they had not really realised mm. um, uh, they had for them that they were really quite deep experiences and that they tended had a tendency to experience them and move on and then there was this whole exploration about so why have you never talked to anyone about those experiences and they almost universally said that they'd never talked to people about them because they assumed that they would be seen as crazy because yeah, wow. our culture dismisses there's a whole lot of stuff to do with the spiritual realm and mystery that our culture gives no space to explore and I've certainly I've discovered in my ministry occasionally I'll be and it's one of the reasons I I go to anything I'm invited to go to is is nine times out of ten I will encounter someone who wants to have a talk about spirituality mm. And often it's prefaced with, um, you're probably one of the only people I could have this conversation with, or you you probably won't think I'm mad if I say. And then they will talk to me about maybe an experience they had of a relative after death, or you know, or or the fact that there was something going on inside them. And that very temerity just says that our culture doesn't give people permission to explore this space. And I, so, I suppose it's a culture that wants to break everything down just to the sum of its parts. Absolutely. It's utilitarian mm. um, and practical and pragmatic. You only, you've only got to look at the way our culture treats grief. Mm. You know, people get people get one or two days off work when someone who's really close to them dies if someone who's not close to them dies that's tough luck mm. um and within 10 days you know people are sort of saying well you should be getting on mm. whereas it takes years to to fully uh process that event in terms of what it means for your life the spiritual significance all of that but our culture is so utilitarian that it basically says well the practicalities are you, you can have a day off to go to the funeral. Um, mm. you, know, you might have a bit of carer's leave. You can use that too if you like. Blah, blah, blah. But within a week, we want you back functioning. Put all of that aside. Um, yeah. So the mystery of death, the mystery of dying, which are, you know, I think, you know, um, I'm sure we'll have a podcast about euthanasia, but uh, mm. part of the, Part of the euthanasia debate is being driven by that same need to control. Um, even death is seen as a utilitarian thing. Um, not that I'm against euthanasia wholeheartedly, but I think there are complexities that the utilitarian culture is going to find it hard to address uh, in terms of helping people die well. Well, I, I guess at its core, the utilitarian culture is one that 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 has come up with an alternate way of making meaning absolutely and that way of making meaning is a very logical one yeah a very practical one and one that has 
uh, I'd say centuries full of track records of disappointing. Disappointing. Well, <laughs> that which, which, which uh, drives the advertising industry because they, mm. you're only ever one product away from reaching fulfilment. Well, again, uh, it's that that regular story that comes out in the news about the surveys that they do with people uh, about their their regrets on their deathbed. Yeah. And nobody says, I I wish I'd spent another weekend in the office. No, that's right. (laughs) Nobody says that. No, 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 that's right. No, it's like, I wish I'd seen another sunset. I wish I'd been with my family. Yeah. And I think um, if you take the utilitarian approach, then it's not too long until you look at a sunset and you're like, yeah, it's just light refracting. That's right. And then 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 it's lost its beauty. And the reductionism of science. Mm. Um, I I love science and science is great, but but there is a tendency for people to use science to reduce things. Mm. And even love is is subject to that. I mean, you you can... You can hear in some scientific discourse the idea that love is just sort of a modified sex drive, and um, it's all chemical based, and it's ex- uh, because they, it's a necessity to explain it fully. Yeah, and yeah, whilst that in one level is true, I mean there are chemicals that get released through loving experience, and yeah, all of that is true, but doesn't explain the why, mm. and doesn't it doesn't explain the experience, and for humans who are experientially based uh, beings, um, being told that this is just a bunch of hormones whizzing around is not meaningful. And it's funny you say that because I think um, a lot of people who would dismiss any uh, sense of a faith life because they, they find it difficult to believe in a greater narrative Many, if not the majority, of these people are living in belief of greater narratives every day. Absolutely, They're in belief that they've found the one. Absolutely, that's, I mean, that's yeah. a greater narrative. Of course, it is. And and humans, if without without some sort of big narrative to uh, sustain them, then we soon get lost in a sense of disillusionment and disempowerment. Mm. I mean, if you don't believe in a some form of big narrative that makes life worthwhile, then you very quickly, um, your energy will dissipate. Well, I guess, yeah, it's the belief that, that things like sunsets and like love can be greater than the sum of their parts. Absolutely. And yeah. um, and, and that is intrinsically linked, I think, to, to faith. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's and the, the faith we can't explain. The faith story gives us a framework in which to explore those things mm. and takes, takes, takes those experiences which get easily dismissed as psychology or chemicals gives us a framework in which we can um, take them seriously, value them and explore them. Jeez. Wow. Well, that's a lot for podcast one, I think. Sure um, is. I think uh, that if there was any uncertainty in my mind beforehand, there's none now that this is a, a podcast that is very helpful for, I guess, the Western world in 2017, which is um, one that is a great producer of unfulfilling lives. Um, and, and I guess discussing some of this, these concepts, no matter what it is you believe, can help to bring people back to an idea of a greater narrative and bring people back to, to an idea of, I guess, a belief in mystery and, and entering into that mystery. Entering into the mystery, yeah. So what are we doing on episode two? Ah. <laughs> There's so many things There's to discuss. There's so many things, that's for sure. Um, yes. we'll, we'll, we'll discuss. I do want to talk in future episodes about your training in science and how your science and faith work hand in hand, not sure. against each other. Yep, that would be um, great. 
and certainly uh, it would be doing an injustice not to discuss your work with uh, the asylum seeker movement and um, and uh, I guess discussing the the faith reasons underpinning that. Um, but Peter, thank you so much for for this conversation. Yeah, it's thanks, been Dom, fascinating. It's been great. And um, yes, make sure you do uh, stay tuned to On the Way. We will have more episodes coming very shortly uh, with similar discussions, and we'll we'll see you soon. Good on you. Thank you.